This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. We cover health policy issues impacting musculoskeletal care, as well as how our orthopedic surgeon listeners can become advocates for our patients in the profession. I'm your host, Adam Brueggemann, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. Today, we're going to be talking about one major aspect that is burdening physician practices and leading to burnout, prior authorization. Orthopedic Advocacy Week is coming up, which is a virtual grassroots effort focused on the critical issues relevant to orthopedic surgeons and their patients, and prior authorization will be one of those topics. Today, we have a special guest, Chris Keene, Chief Operating Officer of TSAOG Orthopedics and Spine in San Antonio, Texas. Chris, welcome to the episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Dr. Bregeman. I'm really happy to talk about this topic. I've been passionate about it for a long time, and I'm happy to help others try to do some of the things that we did in Texas here. That's great. San Antonio has a rich history of orthopedic surgeons. In fact, four past presidents from the Academy are from San Antonio, including Drs. Heckman, Maury, Rockwood, and one more that's really important to TSAOG, which is Dr. Hinchy. Can you tell our audience a little bit about TSAOG and yourself and your role at TSAOG? Yeah, Dr. Hinchy is super important to us. He was one of the founding members of the San Antonio Orthopedic Group back in 1947. We just celebrated last year our 75th anniversary of being in orthopedics in the city, and we couldn't be more proud of that. We've grown, of course, from Dr. Hinchy days into a 40-man orthopedic group, man-woman orthopedic group. Uh, we are 100% physician-owned, and we have all orthopedic subspecialties, a part of the practice, including non-operative orthopedics, and two surgery centers as well that we own 100%. Yeah, speaking personally, what an impressive organization from top to bottom, the surgeons, the administration, and a model for orthopedic practices around the country. Tell me a little bit as we shift over to prior authorization, why did TSAOG, and I know Dr. Profit, a researcher, why did you guys decide to research prior authorization? What led to that process? Yeah, I think the whole entire prior authorization issue started really heating up for us, I'd say, in the middle of 2020, which was during COVID. Um, So to add on top of the issues that we were having during COVID, we started to see insurance companies become a little bit more aggressive in their requirements for prior authorization requests. One in particular was uh, starting to advise us that they were going to start requesting actual images of MRIs in the prior authorization process. And so not just the report, the actual images. And that really got me fired up. And I thought, this is just out of control what's going on here. I don't know what they're gonna do with these images. Are they gonna have a separate radiologist read these images and then say that the surgery is not indicated or what's going on there? At that point, I had reached out to our local Texas Orthopedic Association and said, hey, do we know what's happening here? What's going on here? This just doesn't seem right. And he escalated that to AOS. And they did a really great job of saying, okay, this is just not right. We're going to get with this insurance company. And they actually got that insurance company to back off of that. Now, in the meantime, I'm thinking, this is just happening with all these other carriers as well. And I'm adding more staff and more resources to try and prove that what we're requesting is medically necessary for the patient. And I also know on the back end that we never get denied. They never tell us no. Well, why is that? Because we're requesting medically necessary services for patients. And so do all doctors. 
I firmly believe that. Sure, you could have one or two out there that are just like going crazy and just offering MRIs for everybody for no reason. But I don't believe that that's happening on a regular basis. And in 2021, there was a bill introduced into the Texas legislature that was a gold card bill that says, hey, if they're seeing the same thing, if 90% of the authorizations that the doctor is requesting are approved, give that doctor a pass, give him a gold card so that he doesn't have to request these things going forward. As we start going into that process and the legislative process, if the insurance carriers that have all of their information and all of their data, but doctors don't, and it's very difficult to fight that, to say you can't fight that with anecdotal information. And I knew that, again, I know that we're getting these things approved, I would say almost 100% of the time, but I have access to the data. And that data was astonishing even to me um, as far as how we were getting things authorized. Basically, 99% of the time, they are being authorized. With 1% that I still haven't looked into that I bet if I drilled into that 1%, we're probably at 100%. And that data was used to help move this thing forward from a Texas legislature perspective. Let's talk a little bit about that data. And I have a couple data points that I'll mention, and then we'll talk about them. So the data I have says that your study looked at 30,000 order sets, a mix of imaging and procedures. And as you said, 97% were approved without ever being denied at any point in the process. A further 2% or maybe a little more than 2% were approved after appeal or after providing further information. And less than 1% of all services may have been denied even after providing further information. And again, maybe we need to look into those a little further. Also noted that one in five patients saw a delay in a healthcare decision by a week or more due to requiring additional clinical data and mentioned that there is an average of five interactions for each request. So let's look at this from really a couple different perspectives. You're an administrator for this practice and have been for the better part of 20 years. What's the cost administratively to the practice for having to go through this process that ultimately uh, finds out that you're doing the right thing every time? The cost is mounting. That's what I will say, is that not only just with growth of the practice, but just the growth of the requirements and changing of the requirements every six months or so for different types of procedures by each individual insurance carrier. Not only do we have to grow in staff, to accommodate all those different details of what's happening with the process, but also tracking it. For ourselves, we looked at this and we said, okay, how much is this costing us just with our current staff? And it's over a million dollars. Just in prior authorization, that's all they do for a living is just work prior authorization, requesting, tracking, getting back to patients. But I think the other part of this that is a cost that I think that we don't recognize is in reputation. Because the patients are waiting for these procedures and we're telling them we're waiting from the insurance carrier to get back to us. And sometimes we get into a debate with the patient about whether that's really happening or not. The patient might call insurance and insurance says, well, they're waiting for your clinical information. Oh, yes, that's what they're waiting on. Oh, goodness, I wish we would have sent that. That would have been a great idea. Patients don't understand that. And so we have to explain that process. Generally, we will jump on the phone with the insurance carrier, with the patient, but all of that takes time. And that is a one-to-one conversation that we're having with that insurance carrier and us. And that is an incredible burden on the practice. 
I've heard my staff say, and maybe it's been unique to us, but I think I've heard my staff say or send me pictures of their phones showing that sometimes in order to get someone on the phone from these other entities, whether they're a third party or the actual Blue Cross Blue Shields or United's, they might be on hold for an hour or more waiting to talk to somebody to have the conversation you were just talking about. Is that your experience? Is there a very lengthy process to ultimately get in touch with someone who can help you at the insurance company? Yeah, I think that's when you're seeing those difficult issues that are coming up, that maybe the clinical information is not quite matching exactly what the policy is reading that says that this is how you can be authorized. And then you do need to talk to somebody personally. The insurance carriers are driving you to these other third-party entities that they have hired to process prior authorizations. And so you're going through those processes and it's not just a easy jump on a validity and get your authorization approved by clicking a couple buttons sometimes. And you will see that happen. You will see very long wait times and holds for that to occur. And you also see that even with doctors, when you have to do peer-to-peers, it will send over the clinical information and they may say, hey, we have to do a peer-to-peer with the doctor. Well, goodness, now we are waiting for the doctor and trying to find the right time to get the doctor on the phone with the insurance carrier that almost very quickly in that initial conversation with that provider will get approved once they're on the phone with that medical professional, whoever they have hired to do that. And it just doesn't impact physicians. You mentioned patients. Tell me what you've heard from patients. What are their concerns about the prior authorization process? What are their frustrations? What are they saying to your staff, to the physicians about prior authorization? What's their perspective? They're very frustrated. Patients are frustrated by the wait times in general, not understanding that they have to wait to get that authorization, even though they're in a lot of pain, something may be going on with them that is urgent. We still have to wait to get that authorization. We've actually started looking at an expedited process for patients that may want to opt out of their insurance and pay cash instead of going through the prior authorization process. We've actually had that happen already in the past. In this past or last month in June, we started it. And we've had a couple of patients that said, great, I want it done today. Let me just pay directly for it instead. And perhaps that's part of the game, so to speak, with insurance carriers, because ultimately, if they're approving these requests 100% of the time or near 100% of the time, they know they are then what is the issue really? What is their game? What is their benefit for hiring a third party to even run this program for them? They're spending money on it. Obviously they have staff that's working that. And so I always wonder what's the angle there? Well, perhaps this is the angle that patients will pay for it on their own. Or the other thing that we see and you see in your office for sure is the denial of the procedure once you've performed it for no authorization even though we've gone through this entire process. And so now we'll fight on the back end saying, we do have authorization. Here's the number. Here's the form. Here's where it all is. Perhaps they're waiting for somebody not to appeal that process. And that's where it's worthwhile for them to do this whole entire game. Yeah, I don't have any of the statistics and numbers, but off the top of my head, I believe well over 50% of denials are not ultimately fought on behalf of the physician practice. And so in many areas, if a denial is provided, the physician just gives up and tells the patient, I'm sorry, 
your insurance company has denied this treatment or this procedure. And I think obviously whatever percentage of those they can deny initially, even if they ultimately would have approved it, they know will never go back to an appeal or will never provide further information. The physician gives up, the patient gives up, and the care is not provided. One other perspective I did want to talk about is the employer. And I know that your group has worked very well with various employers in the community, trying to ensure that their employees get back to work efficiently. If they don't need any surgery and they just need some physical therapy, they get that and they go back to work. If they need something more involved, you get them quickly into the operating room and back to their office. How does prior authorization impact these employers who are ultimately, honestly, footing the bill for a lot of this care. They're using the insurance companies as a vehicle, but they're ultimately paying for all of the care that's provided. Yes, they sure are. And we're very sensitive to that. We really do have a philosophy here that we believe that we are part of the solution for healthcare costs. And we are looking for ways to reduce the cost in general to a patient, to an employer, even to an insurance carrier. Believe it or not, we're really trying to do that. And we do have ways of doing that. The best way is to remove third parties altogether. And so if I can direct contract with employers, I don't have to deal with all of those issues. I can do a direct cost, but I'm going to do that direct cost without all of these administrative burdens. I'm going to require that there's not going to be a pre-authorization process, that we will go through this together as an employer and as a provider of healthcare services and have those conversations if things are not going the way that we expect. And if we can remove those barriers, it makes it even better. So that's really where I see that going for employers. That's the best route to go is just do a direct contract. But that's pretty hard to do as an employer. I mean, how am I going to directly contract with an orthopedic problem? And so I'll go to this group and then a cardiology problem. I'm going to go to this group and a women's health problem. I'm going to go to this group. It's very difficult to do. So we are seeing some aggregators of services, I would say, that are trying to put these networks together that have talked to people like us and other cardiologists and all of those services and putting it together saying, hey, we can offer a direct relationship with these doctors directly through this portal and through this network, if you will. And I think that that's probably where employers need to be looking towards to do, because otherwise you're tagged on to one of these book of plans in some way, even if you're self-funded, you're still using the services of those entities, which require prior authorization and the rest of the hurdles that you're dealing with. Yeah, you brought up some of these third parties again and kind of want to address that. So I've seen an increase in these third-party companies. I'm just going to mention one, Evacor. They're a large organization and I looked them up and they described themselves as a medical benefits company. And on their website, the quote I read was, they make sure that health plans help their members avoid unnecessary care that is costly and potentially unsafe. And that's a word-for-word quote from their website. So first question for you, any comments on your thoughts, and I think you've mentioned it, but about a third party ensuring that unnecessary care isn't provided. And when I say a third party, I mean not the physician who's taking care of the patient and not the insurance company but this now third party. Yeah, so your employer is contracting directly with an insurance carrier to provide services to your employees. That's what you want. You want them to be able to get benefits. But what you don't know is that when you're doing that contract, that insurance company is now also contracting with others to review services that are going on. And you may not be privy to that as an employer and have no idea that all of these requirements are in place in order for your employee to get care. 
And it's very, very difficult because the insurance carriers in some respects hide behind that. And we see that a lot when it's a denial on an authorization. And so we've provided the authorization, we've gone through the hoops, we've done that, we've provided the service, we send the bill in, we put the authorization number on there, it gets denied. And we'll find out later that the reason why it's denied is because oh, we have to use the number that Evacor, for example, gave us as the authorization, convert it to a number that the insurance carrier uses. And that's the one, and we didn't have that conversion done to get that in place. Yeah, I'm not a fan. It's another set of rules that somebody else now has established on what should be authorized or not. Great example of that is physical therapy. It's such an easy thing. Like Patients need to get physical therapy from a conservative care perspective. It is not an expensive healthcare cost to do that. Patients do very well in physical therapy and it avoids a lot of other services down the line for patients. So doctor orders physical therapy, go ahead and get that request. Put that request in, follow all those rules. You get the authorization, you get the patient into physical therapy, you see a therapist. Now the therapist, after they evaluate the patient, have to go onto that Evacor portal and fill out all the information that they have now seen with the patient in order for Evacor to say, go ahead and proceed. What is going on with that? That's conservative physical therapy. All of that administrative burden is being placed on the providers, which by the way, we did not contract for from a fee-for-service perspective when we are doing a direct contract with that insurance carrier. I want to provide services. I do not need to have the extra administrative burden. And I do think that that's something that we need to talk about more when we are in contract discussions with insurance carriers, that if you're going to require this, that is an extra cost. That is not the cost of our care. That is the cost of your administrative burden. And I do think that we need to talk about that more when we're in contract conversation with payers. Those are excellent points, which brings up another thought process. There's all these criteria now out there. There's the criteria of the main insurance company. There's the medical benefits companies criteria. There's criteria that maybe we're trying to uphold to that the academy might put out or our specialty society might put out. How do you administratively keep up with all of these criteria may disagree with each other, frankly, And how do you keep up with when they change it? Are you hearing about this? Are they sending you an email saying, hey, we just changed total knee replacement criteria and you need to review this new document? And then follow-ups to that is, how many insurance companies are we now talking about that you need to keep this different and separate criteria for? Because it's not the same across the board. And if you need to get that tomorrow, if one of your staff says, I need to know what the criteria is for this ankle arthroplasty, How hard is it to get that? This is great. So just uh, yesterday or the day before, you get the notice that, hey, something's changing. So this one's coming from, let's call it payer A. You get that notice and it's an email. And so it's a link. It's nice, easy, friendly link. Hey, something's changing. This is great. So you click on that link and go, okay, let me try and figure out what is changing. And I just did this two days ago. And it was a link per plan by that insurance company. And so here's the thing about insurance that people don't understand really is that they think of the five major plans that are out there, right? Your Blue Cross, your United, your Aetna, your Cigna's, you know, those big plans that are out there. But within each of those plans, there are all the subcategories of the plans that they're selling directly to employers. Last year, we billed to 3,000 individual plans, not five, 3,000 individual plans. And so I go to click this link and it says, okay, 
this is the change for this plan. This is the change for this plan. This is the change for this plan. There's five different links in there. And so when you click on that link, then it says, okay, here's all the changes for this service. It affects these plans in these states and this thing. So you ask me, how do you keep up with it? You don't. That's the answer. It's impossible to do. And again, it's part of the game. We don't have the systems to do that. And that's really, I'll tell you that when, again, another third party, so you have a lot of salespeople that are now in a prior authorization process trying to sell practices, abilities to be able to manage this and to manage the tracking of patients and the tracking of each individual insurance carrier and what their changes are. As soon as you start hearing that, you know you got a problem. You're introducing cost into the healthcare system by doing that. And I just refuse to do that. I will not play that game. I'll just let them tell us. We're just dumb. We don't know. You just tell us. Tell us how it's supposed to work. I want to just touch on that one more thing that people probably don't know about your group. I was recently at your office. We had a state legislator who has been very supportive, including of the prior authorization bills, Democrat from here in San Antonio, who represents us in Austin. And in addition, you've had actually the representative of Congress, the member of Congress who represents where some of your offices exist in the San Antonio market. And you've had him out, a Republican from the area, to visit your office and meet with your surgeons. Just to break down the barriers, was that a complicated process to get those people to come to visit, to come to say hi? And how interested were they? How engaged were they in the conversations that the administration and the surgeons brought up regarding the issues they were facing? I tell you that it's not a difficult process. They actually do want to meet their constituents and they want to meet businesses that are important in their districts in general. And so us being a larger group, it's a little bit easier for us for them to know who we are. They probably heard our name. They may have even had services with us before. Um, so I don't think that's very difficult at all. You can easily just call their offices and say, I'd like to have a visit. Now, it might be difficult getting on their schedules, especially if it's during session time and course, that's easy to accommodate. We're always going to be here. When they come to the office, I think that they're surprised. I think that they're surprised to learn about some of the difficulties that we face as physicians, even though they hear about it on a regular basis. When they're dealing with you one-on-one, -on -one, they tell me more about that. They are interested. They are trying to learn a little bit more about what they can do to affect change and they're also surprised by some of the things that we do, like outpatient total joints. And you hear the word outpatient total joints and you think, okay, yeah, that's great. They go to the hospital and then they go home the same day. No, it's being done in same day surgery. You're going home within six hours of incision time for a total joint. You go home the same day, like in your car, you go home. Yes, you do. And so they can learn about things that, you know, even we think is normal and the rest of the world is doing. They may not have heard about it. They are very surprised about some of the things that we have to say, but it's really great to have that personal connection. And it's important for us to do that. I just want to transition as we have a few more minutes left regarding federal regulatory and legislative environment. In April of 2022, the Office of the Inspector General for Health and Human Services released report showing that 85,000 prior authorization requests were denied in 2019. And 20% would have been approved by Medicare if we utilized Medicare's criteria for approving procedures. Do you think that's consistent with your experience at TSAOG with regards to the Medicare Advantage plans? Yeah, so the Advantage plans, very interesting dynamics that we're having there because they're being administered by the same plans that commercially insured 
patient is being insured by. You know, we're going through a lot of those processes trying to learn and understand how that should be working. It scares me a little bit more on the Medicare side because of the vulnerability of the patients and their age and the need to get services quicker. So we are a little bit more concerned on that side. And I'm very glad that federally we're looking at that and trying to make sure that there is good processes in place to ensure that, yes, we want to make sure that these dollars are being spent wisely and that there is not care being performed that's unnecessary. But we have to make sure that we are not seeing the same experience that we have on the commercial side with these vulnerable folks. Bills have been introduced in the House and Senate in the last session. The one that has been the focus is called Improving Seniors' Timely Access to Care Act, which was a focus of a prior advocacy bone beat podcast and trying to fix some of these issues we're talking about. When it passed with a voice vote in the House and then had 52 co-sponsors, bipartisan in the Senate, but ultimately died at the last minute at the end of this session due to a $16 billion cost from the Congressional Budget Office. You and I were talking the other day about a Senate letter that's been sent to Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And by my count, we're at 62 signatures bipartisan. And they're encouraging CMS to finalize a series of rules that they have proposed. And those rules include establishing an electronic process for prior authorization, accelerating some of these decision timeframes, as you said, are important for this population reducing some of the administrative burden while increasing transparency around the requirements and expanding protections to improve the patient experience. The senators, though, in their letter have added a couple things to that, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it. One is establishing a mechanism for real-time electronic prior authorization decisions for those things that are routinely approved, whether they're items or services. The second is requiring plans to require to prior authorization requests within 24 hours for urgent requests as opposed to the current proposal of 72 hours. And finally, some more details around the transparency metrics. So I want to walk through that just a little bit before we close. How does requiring electronic prior authorization help the physicians, help practices, help patients navigate this process? Yeah, I think that's a must. That has to happen. Otherwise, we're going to be on the phones. So what's the other options that we have? So we have to have that electronic process in place. Here's the thing, Medicare, at least before prior authorization, the payment rates to physicians have declined over the last 20 years, and now you're adding more burden. If you were a Medicare-only practice, you didn't have to worry about authorizations as much until the Medicare Advantage plans came in. Of course, now you're dealing with that. But now you're talking about the entire population of Medicare with a lot of services that you could imagine expand to all the types of things that we do for commercial payers. But your reimbursement is so much less, and you're going to have to add those staff in order to do that. There has to be a change in the physician fee schedules in order to accommodate that, I would say. But as far as this letter goes, yeah, all of those things, I think, are critically important for practices in order to survive this, to be able to take care of patients the way that they've come to expect us to do so. One final thing they mentioned in their letter was artificial intelligence. And that's certainly a buzzword for 2023. If you haven't heard artificial intelligence discussed in some aspect of daily life, I don't know, you may not have been reading the news, but senators in their letter mentioned that artificial intelligence may be utilized to create real-time electronic prior authorization through software solutions. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's viable? Do you like the concept? Are there concerns you have regarding introducing artificial intelligence to try and speed this process up and or get us to 
literal real-time approval of certain procedures or treatments. That's interesting, really. We're looking at it ourselves on our end to make it be easier for us to get it approved. Can we use artificial intelligence to review our notes ahead of time to say, hey, you're missing these three things that you need to say in order to get this approved? Yeah, I think that is something that will happen. I think it'll happen on both sides. I think it's probably been happening to some degree, not to the level that we're now fully aware of how artificial intelligence really will work. But I do think at some point in time, there's just two computers talking to each other, which would be beautiful, which would be able to say, hey, this is what's going on here with this patient. And here's everything that you needed to ask me about. And oh, thank you for giving this to me. Yes, of course, the patient can have the service. And if that were to happen on both sides, then that's a beautiful thing and everybody moves forward. And then why do we even need to have prior authorization at that point? But I do think that is something that will be utilized. It has to be. That's how you bring down the cost of these kinds of services on both sides. Either you have to do it with labor or you do it with technology. There's no other option. And so the cost of labor with it increasing over and over, and you're starting to talk about a larger volume of patients that the insurance carrier has to process, they're going to have to do something. And I think it's going to be along uh, technology lines. I want to thank Chris Keene and TSAOG for their efforts in helping to reduce the burdens we face as physicians on behalf of our patients. I would also like to again highlight the upcoming Orthopedic Advocacy Week. If you are a fellow of the AAOS, please watch your emails for communications regarding how you can get involved. Chris, it was a pleasure. I really appreciate all that you do for everyone across the country. Your efforts, although, as you said, are a small pebble, make a massive ripple and your data and work has been much appreciated. Thank you again for your time today and for all of your insight. Thank you so much, Dr. Bruggeman, and the feeling is mutual. We really do appreciate the things that you do as a practicing surgeon to help all orthopedic surgeons get better in the practice of medicine and the practice of business to do the things that they love to do. And we really do appreciate you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Orthopedic Advocacy Week, please visit our website at aaos.org slash orthopedic advocacy week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. If you like what you heard today, please consider offering a rating or review and sharing the podcast with your colleagues. You can learn more information about this topic and other AAOS advocacy efforts by visiting aaos.org forward slash the Bonebeat advocacy.